and work your way in each of us. In your name. Amen. Have a seat. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I think we've been in verses 8 through 11 for the last three messages. Again, I don't uh, map out my sermons each week like I was taught to do in seminary. Um, It's just never worked for me. So I just truly, and I don't try to... uh, sound overly spiritual because I am not an over-spiritual guy. I'm very human and I know all too well how clayish my feet really are. And the few times that I have gone back into various messages for one reason or another, I look at them, I read over significant parts of them, and I think, who wrote this? And I mean that in a, in a truly and kind of an astounding way. And again, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying that that I sense God's presence in a unique way, and always have when I am trying to discern His Word. And do not confuse what I just said there for implying in any way, shape, or form that what I say is infallible. This is the only thing that is infallible and authoritative. I do the best I can with that, and then the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul wrote in verse 8 of chapter 3. I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And tracking on last week, as far as this thing called the New Year's resolution, this is quite the worthy one if you're going to have a resolution. And actually, every Christian should have this one, not as uh, a nice thing to do, but as an obligation of what it means to be owned by Jesus Christ and filled with his spirit. Well, what this resolution, I'm just keeping that theme going means in simpler terms is that in the coming year, it means that I, as a follower of Jesus, will strive to keep Christ in his rightful place as Lord of my life. The problem with this statement is that there's something about the way most of us, not all of us maybe, but most of us, I think, are wired together, and that is that we have this this compelling sense that the way we are to do this by keeping Lord as, you know, the Lord of my life and keeping Him where He belongs is by making spiritual lists. And by that spiritual list, we judge how well or how poorly we are accomplishing that particular goal in our life. The thing about this is, is that the moment I begin listing activities or behaviors of what it means to keep Christ in his rightful place, it sounds like I'm reducing the life of faith to a list of regulations, to a list of do's and don'ts. And yeah, I I guess I am. And we do this because, at least in my mind, if I can keep my list checked off, 
then I retain my good standing with the church and with the God of heaven. So I want to be very clear about this this morning. My resolution, paraphrasing Paul's words, is I will strive to keep Christ in his rightful place as Lord of my life. But it's much, much more than a list of religious obligations. In fact, it is both infinitely harder than a checklist, and yet it is infinitely easier than a checklist. You say, okay, hold on a minute. You can't have it both ways. Well, that happens to be called, what I just stated, an antinomy. There's a great word for you. An antinomy is a contradiction between two conclusions that are in themselves reasonable. Another word for it or a synonym for an antinomy is a paradox. And I maintain that both of those are true, and I hope that you will see why by the time we get done here this morning. So let's see if these two ideas are, in fact, contradictory conclusions and yet both reasonable. On the front end, counting all things as loss in exchange for the surpassing value of gaining Christ is much harder than simply adhering to a religious list of do's and don'ts. Among other reasons for that is that even if we were able to successfully... Even if we were able to successfully check off everything we had on that list, and let's even assume that the list is comprehensive, even if we were successful at checking off everything on that list, it still wouldn't be good enough. Now, who says? Well, God says in many places throughout the Scriptures. Just a little smattering. Going to the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, we are told there are none righteous. That is all-encompassing for all of humanity. To Titus, the Apostle Paul wrote, Not by works of righteousness we have done. Referring to salvation. The prophet Isaiah said, All our good deeds are as filthy rags. He didn't say all our bad deeds. We understand that. He said all our good deeds are as filthy rags. And to the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of works, lest anyone should boast. So even while the pastor or the priest or the church or you may berate you for not having a very complete list of checks, the God of heaven has said, you will never have a sufficient list to satisfy me. So keeping Jesus in first place, and there I'm going to borrow the language that Paul uses to the church of the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 18, keeping Jesus in first place, by a checklist, becomes absolutely life-draining because we are incapable of pleasing God, even at our best. Now, many Protestants and non-Protestants come out of church traditions where a religious checklist was your holiness meter. You know, you see, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. 
If you looked all shiny on the outside, if you wore the right clothes, if you knew the right verses, if your hair was the right length, if your skin was ink-free, and you avoided the visible wicked things of life, like smoking and drinking and going to movies and listening to music that has a beat, and you weren't divorced, you were recruited for positions of leadership of teaching, of service and decision-making in the church. Many of you in here, like my wife, grew up in a non-Protestant tradition. And you grew up struggling to make every, what's called a holy day of obligation. You made sure that you received those sacraments whenever they were offered. You performed the proper penance for your confessed sins and you strove to do enough religious things to cancel out your non-religious things. And if you were successful, you were deemed semi-qualified to hope to God that you'd measure up to heaven, knowing though full well that you wouldn't. Which is why you would anticipate an undetermined number of years in a contrived afterlife, working off your insufficiencies, where one day, maybe, you'll be promoted to heaven with Jesus. Both of those are absolutely uh, theological positions which are absolutely in error. They are in essence insulting to the God of heaven because they deny the very sufficiency and completion of Christ's living, doing, and dying for all who genuinely accept his gift of righteousness and sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus had much to say about such an errant theological practice. And in fact, he chastised the religious leaders of his day about whom he says in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, in vain do they, referring to the religious leaders, the know-it-alls of the day, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, and yet neglecting the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. Now, do we remember what the definition is of religion. Religion is man's plan to get to heaven, to get to God. Christianity is God's plan to get to man. And that plan was foretold from Genesis to Malachi. That would be called the Old Testament. It was realized in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was lived out in the epistles, all the other letters, and it was completed in the book of Revelation. So keeping Jesus in his rightful place is infinitely harder than a checklist if you're the one trying to check off all that is required. But now the second part of the antinomy. And yet it is infinitely easier than a checklist if you just take hold of that perfect list that was checked off and completed perfectly for you by Christ. 
Only then, Paul writes, continuing his words to the Philippian believers in verse 9, only then I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, think checklist, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So thus far, what I've covered thus far in verses 8 and 9, is what is generally preached when this text is preached at all, which is good. But it stops short at that point of the whole picture. It stops short of what did God really say, thinking back to last week. See, God's Word doesn't stop after verse 9. So we have to continue with Paul explaining that when we are found to be in Christ, as we are when we receive his completed list, it is then that we will, verses 10 and 11, know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, warning. Right now, this is going to get a little intellectually intense. Verses 8 and 9 were relatively easy as far as the task of understanding what was written, what God has really said. Verses 10 and 11, less so. The text reads, and I'm going to throw in the phrase that comes before it just to keep the thought flowing and making sense. The righteousness which comes from God based on faith, now the new, stuff, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To know there, the word in the Koine Greek is an infinitive verb and it's in the dative case, which is how I just translated it. To know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Translating the word the way they do, though, in the New American Standard Bible, which is what I use for my preaching but also in many, many other translations, they write, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, it may seem like a small thing, but it's a very important thing in what has God really said. And I'm going to try and help us understand this. That I, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection gives a certain feel of uncertainty to verses 10 and 11. It makes it feel like it's a possible outcome of having the righteousness of God as one's own, but it's not a guaranteed outcome. Maybe I can make what I'm trying to say clearer by just reading verses 8 through 11, adding a few words to convey the uncertainty that I'm talking about here. All right. The first part of it, verbatim, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, paraphrasing to give this uncertainty that I'm talking about. With the end result that in gaining Christ, hopefully, I might also know him in the power of his resurrection, and that I might also know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death with the final result that I 
hopefully may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that is a problematic interpretation on numerous levels. So in our attempts, again, to determine what God has really said, thinking again back to last week's message, this is where it is doubly important to remember one of the supreme and absolute key principles of rightly dividing the word of truth, of Bible interpretation, and that is allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible, which presumes knowing what the whole Bible says. Keeping that singular principle in mind, knowing what we know of all of Paul's other inspired writings, as well as the rest of all that God has said, Paul does not intend there to be any doubt about the believer's earthly existence or his eternal destiny. Understanding this, when Paul writes then, at the end of verse 8, to gain Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, there is no uncertainty about what our identity with Jesus and his living, doing and dying means to the believer, both now and hereafter. In fact, this serves to underscore not what our maybes when we received Christ, but what are necessary givens or the absolutes that are part and parcel of the whole redemption picture. Let me say this a little differently. Gaining Christ confers certain realities upon every believer. These certainties are all the good and the positive and the happy things that we North American Christians in particular want to learn about. We want to know about, we want to hear about them, and we want to concentrate on them when we come to church. To the exclusion of the other certain realities which Paul cites in verse 10. Namely, the fact that the faith that is saving faith includes everything we like to think about knowing Jesus and everything we want to think about concerning Jesus being our friend and our helper and our advocate and our provider and our rock and our healer, but it also includes what Paul just wrote, namely the koinonia of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Yeah. Paul has written that when Christ is gained, and how is he gained? By faith. His unstained perfection becomes our righteousness. Our life becomes so wrapped up in, becomes so intertwined with his to the extent that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ is gained, your approved status with God is settled once and for all time. 
And that, at that moment, is when every believer also shares in, koinonia's in, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And this is exactly where we lose a big chunk of the church. Many are called, few are chosen. That suffering stuff and whatever that conformed to his death stuff means, it doesn't sound appealing and I don't want it. And the truth is, I come to church to hear life strengthening, life affirming, love talk and encouragement. Don't confuse me with truth that I need to hear. Tell me what I want to hear. But it's even worse than that today. Because it has grown over the course of time to the place of tell me what I want to hear, whether it is true or not. And this warped satanically inspired expectation of such a big part of the church is pandemic in the body of Christ globally. And it's pricely because the juggernaut of Satan's deception, which I talked about last week, is deeply entrenched in the church. Why? Because of Christian uncertainty of what God has actually said. Remember the serpent, Satan, in the garden with Eve last week. Did God really say? The serpent says to Eve. Now for the rest of our time together, I think it will be helpful to understand how the church has become so wayward. Enter the kings and queen of what I will call pseudo-Christian confusion. The kings and queen of pseudo-Christian confusion. This is Guideposts magazine. It is a magazine that is currently in circulation in a very big way. It was first started about 70 years ago in 1945 by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. If you go to the website, it says categorically that it is a Christian faith-based organization and goes on from there. This is quoting from the opening page of their website today. Like the millions of people who have read The Power of Positive Thinking by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, you can profoundly change your life by changing your thinking. Dr. Peale's message and positive thinking tips are as powerful and relevant today as they were when he wrote about them. Commit yourself to optimistic thinking. You'll be better equipped to overcome life's difficulties and create a life of happiness and success. 
now. Compare that to Paul's resolution to counting all things loss to gain Christ. Power of His resurrection. Fellowship of His sufferings. Conformed to His death. Guideposts magazine today is ranked number one as one of America's favorite magazines for women and adults, reaching an overall readership of over 5 million people. The pernicious nature of magazines such as Guidepost is precisely this. It is its non-discriminating publishing of anything that sounds spiritual. And the Christian who doesn't know their Bible, which is basically most of Christendom. And they don't know what God actually said. And so they are open to deception precisely as Eve was. And what I mean by non-discriminating publishing is that you can pick up guideposts and you will read or you'll even see on the cover at times people who are absolutely solid and Bible-believing, who know their Bibles and are living that life. You'll find that in guideposts. And so, again, the Christian is like, this is such an awesome little pamphlet, little magazine kind of thing. And then on the very next article, you'll read something by Shirley MacLaine and her rubbish about New Age and thinking and positive things and all this stuff. And so to the Christian who does not know what has God really said, it's all part and parcel of the same big gospel mumble-jumble pseudo-Christian confession. A next big step in the downward uh, slide of Christianity came through the writings of a psychiatrist named Dr. M. Scott Peck. In 1978, he published the 10 million bestseller, The Road Less Traveled. I was given The Road Less Traveled before I came here to Maine. I had just gotten out of seminary. It was given to me by a family member. Why? Because this was this wonderful, new, hot, best-selling book on Christianity, and since I was now the token, you know, minister in the family, this is a must-read for you. And so I started to read through Scott. I was certainly familiar with him, didn't know really anything about him. I started reading through his book, just like guideposts. There were actually some very beneficial, some good ways of looking at things in there. But it was all couched in the terms and, 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 and right there in the bed with all the other garbage and trash and deception of Satan. It's just another classic confused spirituality mixing psychobabble with some Christian jargon or terminology tossed in here and there. In the mid-80s, culture traversed a third rung on the ladder into the pit of deception. Let's get that picture up there, please. Uh, 
led by an engaging woman who entered mainstream television, becoming a part of 15 to 20 million viewers' lives, mostly female, on a daily basis. Her appeal was an empathetic, non-judgmental spirituality, approaching life with a vibe, again, of, of positivity and of openness and kindness. It is the perfect combination for deception. Oprah Winfrey was raised in a Baptist church. And as recently as two years ago, still maintains that she is a Christian. Oprah's gospel of affirming goodness had millions of churchgoers eating out of her hand, spending many more hours on a weekly basis with the high priestess of afternoon TV than they ever spend at church. Her own testimonies through the years are very clear that she has no clue what God has really said. And in the last uh, 70 years since Dr. Norman Vincent Peale and Guideposts, a fourth and current step in the death of biblical Christianity is today the undisputed king of the hill whose latest book is You Can, You Will. I can't imagine you're guessing who it is. That's why I had selected the cover of Guidepost that I did. In case you're wondering, it's Joel. A Facebook friend of mine who teaches at Trinity posted a picture of his current book that I just mentioned, You Can and You Will, and the only comment he put was, I can't and I won't. I thought, but millions globally do, and every bit of it falls on the question, did God really say? And the honest answer of today's millions of Christians globally is, well, did God really say? I don't know. And I have neither the time nor the concern to find out because I am so busy about all things except the right things. Instead of counting all things as lost to gain Christ, so I live not by what God has said, but by what I think He might have said or should have said if He were me. And sports fans, I am talking here about the church that wears the name of Jesus Christ. What God has really said is that when Christ is gained, your approved status with God is settled, and that is when you can expect to know the power of His resurrection. And without that divine, supernatural resurrection power, there is no way any of us can make it through all of life's temptations that assail us 
We cannot possibly make it through all the crises that engulf us. We can't possibly make it through all the clamoring that competes for our time and attention. When Christ is gained, your approved status with God is settled, and that is when you can expect to know the fellowship of His sufferings. That is not a maybe. That is not just reserved for people living in the Middle East. That is a definite for all believers. Well, what does that mean? I thought that Jesus took my whippings upon himself. He did. He appeased the Father's wrath against all ungodliness. Not the world's. First John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that means the appeasing, of, uh, for our sins. Jesus, we, when, when it's talking here about the sufferings of Christ, it's not talking about the sufferings poured out on Him because of our sinfulness by a divine judgment. It's talking about the hatred of Satan and the world for all who wear His name. You don't share in those sufferings poured out on Jesus. That is a done deal. It is completed. But to be friends with God, we are told in the book of James chapter 4, is to be enemies with the world. And I don't have time to go into any detail with this, and I was going to use this as an illustration. I met with the, the pastor's group that we meet with on a monthly basis here at the church, and one of the subjects that we've been talking about, I guess, for a couple of months, I wasn't there last month, we've been talking about is, is how can we sort of, as the church, gain favor with our communities? And so they're talking about buying a fire engine for the fire department and, you know, all kinds of things like this, which are, you know, there's a place for that. There's a, it's a great idea and all of that. But I just let everybody talk, and then I spoke. And a real nutshell kind of condensation is pastor friends, your heart's in the right place. And there is a place for these things. But if your motive is that by jumping through the hoops of how the world thinks we are supposed to function and act as the church by doing good deeds for the community, you have not read your Bibles. Because to be friends with God is to be an enemy of the world. And while they were sit there, and if we bought the, the fire department a fire engine, they'd go, hooray for the church. Now they're finally acting like the church. But I guarantee you, as soon as another issue comes up where the church is supposed to be salt and light against the immoral degradation of our culture, and we take a stand, we will be right back in the pit of hell as far as the community is concerned, because we are not here to try and gain points with them, nor could we ever do it. Is that clear? That was the nutshell version. <laughs> Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. They will 
maybe respect you for that moment that you buy that fire engine. But I assure you, when you actually act like the body of Christ on earth, they will hate you, loathe you, and despise you. In other words, you will be a partaker, a sharer in my sufferings if your faith is real. I don't like that, honestly. I don't have this martyrdom wish. But let's look at the early believers and the difference in their heart from today's Christian. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name of Jesus, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. If you don't remember what that was about, (laughs) that was those sweet, gentle, unoffensive disciples of Jesus pointing at the Jews and saying, this Jesus whom you crucified... And his prophets, whom you crucified. And after calling the apostles in, they beat them and ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they went their way going, Oh my goodness, what has happened? I thought that Jesus took all our whippings upon himself. We're not supposed to be going through this. I want my best life now. (laughs) No, that wasn't their attitude. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. In what? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. When Christ is gained, your approved status with God is settled. And that is when you can expect to be conformed to his death. Meaning what? When Christ's righteousness is received, Christ is gained, and the believer's identification with Christ is so total that there is a relinquishing of one's own life, becoming ever more transforming to the life that looks like the life of Jesus. I actually found something beneficial this week. It's a rare occurrence when you go to a commentary, but I did. This is what this scholar wrote. This is the process of sanctification and is intended to bring the present state into ever-increasing conformity to Christ. Therefore, those who died with him and rose with him must exhibit this truth by a separation from the old life and a continual walking in the power supplied by Christ's resurrection. What does Paul write to the church at Ephesus chapter 4, beginning in verse 21? If indeed you have heard Jesus and have been taught in him, Just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. And the net result of all of this is verse 11, the certainty of resurrection. 
because without the whole package there, not just the feel good, but all of it, the legitimacy of your faith is in question. That's not me. That is, what has God really said? Gaining Christ means to go through 2015 and beyond with God as your advocate, certainly. With God as your guard, as your encourager, as your strength, as your endurance, and your life. Otherwise, if you always do what you always did, you're always going to get what you've always got. Heady stuff, to be sure. But you cannot, must not take my word for anything. Again, I'm a fallible individual. Which is why we must be with the Lord in His Word as a regular discipline. Not as something to check off the list, but because it is a matter of eternal life and death. And it is a matter of preventing ourselves becoming deceived because of our ignorance of what God has really said. Let me have you stand. Oh, boy. Lord in heaven, Jesus, Savior and Lord, thank you for coming and taking not our checklist, but the Father's checklist. And absolutely fulfilling it, every jot, every tittle, every kariah and yod. Oh, Lord, I pray, strip away the blinds of lethargy amongst this congregation, amongst the church that wears your name. And dear God, help us to understand in a new and fresh way what it is to walk in resurrection power. Not avoiding the fellowship of your sufferings, but as we go through them. Not taking our life claiming it as our life and doing with our life what we want, but conforming our lives to your lives, which means declaring ourselves dead, yet alive in you. Take these heavy, heavy words, O God, I pray. Make them clear and to sink deeply within us. For thy name's sake, amen.